It wasn't only in the states that people had slaves. In the early days of this country, many white people kept slaves too. Many white men stole the lives of blacks with slavery. In return, many of these slaves stole from their masters. In the case of Freelove Hazard Allen, her life was also returned by slave owners. Freelove Hazard Allen was a slave of a colonel in Charlottetown. She became the key figure in a trial for theft. In the spring of 1796, she was charged with theft, along with her husband and another male slave. All three were described as servants of the colonel. The theft took place in the barracks of the commanding officers on March 21, 1796. Freelove admitted to stealing coins and clothing with a value of 25 pounds, but she gave no reason for her actions. Freelove's husband and the other slave were accused of aiding the crime and accepting stolen goods. The judge in the case owned a slave. One of the assistant judges owned four slaves. The other assistant judge had been robbed by a slave a year earlier. There were at least three slave owners among the jurors. It was clear to Freelove that she wouldn't get a break in this courtroom. Section 18 of the Act relating to treasons and felonies made embezzlement by slaves with a value over 40 shillings or two pounds a felony. Hanging was mandatory on conviction. Freelove's husband and the other slave involved were convicted of receiving stolen goods. They were acquitted on the charge of inciting and aiding Freelove to commit the crime. The men got branded with a T for theft on the palm of their left hands and received 500 lashes on their bare backs. After that, they returned to jail until each could post a bond to keep the peace. Freelove was convicted of larceny and sentenced to death. She was scheduled to hang April 5, 1796. Many white women in Charlottetown didn't want to see Freelove hang. A petition was started right away to save her life. The petition with 33 signatures was sent to the lieutenant governor. The petition had some conditions. It said that Freelove acknowledged her crime and would agree to be indentured for life and sent to the West Indies or elsewhere and sold. If she returned to P.E.I., she would be executed. Freelove agreed to the conditions. Since she was illiterate, her signature of X was marked for her by one of her sympathizers. The women who signed the petition displayed a sisterhood with Freelove. Petitions for clemency were common, yet they almost never were made for women. Perhaps that's why it was a success. On May 9, 1796, Freelove was given 40 days to leave Prince Edward Island. That is the last heard of Freelove Hazard Allen. It is assumed she left Canada alive and never returned. I'm Donna Kakonge. When my feet first touched a Canada shore, I threw myself on the ground, rolled in the sand, seized handfuls of it and kissed them, and danced around, till in the eyes of several who were present, I passed for a madman. Those are the words of Josiah Henson, an American slave who found freedom in Upper Canada. Josiah is the most famous and controversial slave to come to Canada. It is rumored that Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, was based on Josiah. Josiah was born on a plantation in Maryland on June 15, 1789. He learned about the cruelty of slavery early when his brothers and sisters were sold. His father also tried to defend his mother from the insults of an overseer.
For that, Josiah's father received 100 lashes, and his ear was cut off. Josiah ended up growing up alone with his mother. When he was old enough, he was sold to another plantation owner. At the age of 21, he married. He and his wife had 12 children. Eight of them survived. Because Josiah worked hard and was loyal to his master, he was put in charge of the master's farm. Later, Josiah's master got into debt and had to sell his farm. So Josiah went to work for the master's brother in Kentucky. Josiah, his family, and 28 other slaves traveled by foot to reach the Kentucky plantation. While in Cincinnati, the other slaves encouraged Josiah to follow them to freedom in Canada. But because Josiah was loyal to his former master, he refused and turned the other slaves in. Josiah stayed with his new owner for three years. In that time, he moved from field hand to manager to unofficial overseer. He was also given more spare time. He used this time to become a Methodist Episcopal preacher. He saved his earnings so he could buy his freedom. They agreed on a price of $450. But Josiah was illiterate, and his new owner cheated on the documents. When Josiah found out about the betrayal, he planned his escape. Choosing a day in September of 1830, when his owner was away, Josiah fled with his family, hiding by day and traveling by night. For three years after, Josiah worked as a farmer in Upper Canada near Fort Erie in Niagara. His 12-year-old son taught Josiah how to read, and he became the local preacher. Josiah would encourage blacks to save their money, buy land collectively, and farm. Josiah began having the idea of developing a self-supporting black community. He formed the Dawn Settlement in southern Ontario. Josiah had strong convictions that he preached about on his widespread travels. They were the importance of farming, owning land, and British patriotism. Josiah Henson's last words were on May 5, 1883. I'm Donna Kakonge. John Ware stands out in the cowboy history of Alberta. He was born into slavery in the American South around 1845. He spent his youth picking cotton in South Carolina. When he left the plantation of his birth, he worked for many years rounding up horses in Texas. His fame grew with his equestrian talents. After that, he headed north to Alberta. John arrived in Alberta in 1882. He started working for a ranch there. The rancher was hesitant to hire him at first. As a pioneer, John was a man of action rather than words. He commanded the respect of his fellow cowboys, a difficult thing for a black man in those days. Ten years after John settled in Alberta, he married. By 1900, John and his wife had five children. His wife did the bookkeeping for the ranch and taught the children how to read and write. He was a strong man. One day, John was taking his family for a ride in a horse-drawn buggy. The horses were struck by lightning, causing John to unhitch the team and pull the buggy back to his farm himself. He moved from the Calgary area to the banks of the Red Deer River in 1902. They bought several hundred acres of land and built a cabin with spruce logs on the river bank. But trouble soon followed. The river flooded and the Ware family almost lost their lives as their home was swept away by water. John saved what logs he could and rebuilt the cabin on higher ground overlooking the stream.
That stream is now called Ware Creek. The family was not in their new home for long. In the spring of 1905, John's wife died of pneumonia. In September of the same year, John was killed while riding a horse that tripped and crushed him, breaking his neck. The influence John had on his community was shown by the fact his funeral was the largest in the young city's history. His children went to live with their grandparents. The Ware's Rosebud Log House is now in Dinosaur Park as a tribute to one of Alberta's pioneer families. I'm Donna Kakonge. Marianne Chad Carey lived a multifaceted life as a teacher, political activist, journalist, and lawyer in the 19th century. Not an easy feat for a woman born in the United States in 1822 as a free black. Growing up in Delaware and Pennsylvania, she was the eldest of 13 children. Her father was a successful boot manufacturer, and Mary knew a life of comfort. Politically active, Mary's father was involved in the abolitionist movement, and his interests were passed on to his children. Despite the fact the Shad family were wealthy, Mary had problems receiving an education in Delaware. Blacks were not allowed to go to school. In Pennsylvania, with a growing anti-black sentiment, Mary's parents paid for her private education with the Quakers. Even with the advantages Mary had compared to many blacks of that time, because she was a woman, only certain professions were open to her. She became a teacher. British North America abolished slavery in 1833. Mary, at the age of 28, took advantage of this by seeking refuge in this country in the fall of 1851. She settled in Windsor. Mary taught black children. She also exercised her passion for political writing by publishing her pro-Canada pamphlet, Notes on Canada West, in 1852. Mary faced multiple layers of racism and sexism inside and outside the black community. Because she was light-skinned and part of the black elite, this drew resentment from other blacks. Later on, Mary's love of writing and politics led her to become the editor of the Provincial Freeman. This paper had correspondence in Ontario with subscribers across Canada and the U.S. Mary lived an unconventional private life for a woman of those times. She married a businessman and activist from Toronto. They lived apart during their four-year marriage, while Mary raised funds for her newspaper. The arrangement seemed to work. However, at her husband's death at the age of 35, Mary was pregnant with their second child. Like many widows, financially she was in trouble. Mary continued to struggle in the male-dominated world of journalism. Sexism was widespread at that time, and she had to hide the fact she was editor of The Freeman. In the 1860s, Mary returned to the U.S. She earned a law degree, continued her teaching, and was active in the women's suffrage movement until her death in 1893. I'm Donna Kakonge. Thinking globally and acting locally.